How are you guys? I'm fine. Good. Um, so how do we pronounce your name? Uh, it's Aras, like, you know, Toys Aras without all the toys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the best way to get it through to Americans. All right, so Aras is here with us on the line because he has a solution for that moment when you are struggling with a bag of chips. You can't open it. It's a terrible experience we've all been through. So, uh, Aras, uh, you want to tell us your tip? Yeah, sure. Actually, uh, it's uh, quite an exotic solution, I think. Uh, see, I work for a company called Hitits, and we do uh, software for the airlines all over the world. So I was in Taiwan, of all places, for a project. The thing is, the clients are there, and I am there, and I'm hungry, and I'm trying to get a bag of lace uh, open. But it's one of those stubborn bags, right? So it won't just open from the seam. Right. And I'm a little bit concerned that I'm going to shower all the clients with the uh, chips. So <laughs> as I was <laughs> trying to do that silently, uh, like the senior vice president guy, all Taiwanese, you know, very formal, sees me and he comes over. And he just gets out two coins out of his pocket and he says, uh, hand it over to me. And the thing is, uh, what he does is that he uh, places these coins on the opposite sides, right along the seam on the back. So, and then he squeezes them with his thumbs, and he just makes a shearing motion. He uses them like scissors, and they cut uh, right through the uh, back very cleanly. So basically what you're doing is you're taking uh, two coins and uh, uh-huh. putting them on either side of, of the seam there, and then just sort of twisting it open as you normally would, but the coins kind of firm up your grip. Yeah, yeah, they uh, cut right through the, you know, uh, the material. Uh, I've uh, tried it quite a few times from that time, and uh, it works every time, so it's like magic, yeah. Brilliant. That's great. Uh-huh. And so now this guy was the vice president of this company you were meeting with? Yeah, he was the vice president of this Taiwanese airline company called TransAsia. Wow, so that, I mean, that, he must, that's not a mistake that he was the vice president. This is clearly a guy <laughs> with ideas. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, practical solutions for common problems, kind of, yeah. (laughs) This is How to Do Everything. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. On today's show, we'll tell you how to perfect your personal unmanned spy drone. And we have a physics how-to for you. Which we promise isn't as boring as it sounds. But first, I I fell down on the ice uh, last week. I hurt my hand, I hurt my elbow, I, I hurt my ribs. You look really tough. I mean, you've got like a lot of tough scabs and like bloody things going on. That said, I would like to keep it from happening again. So online with us now is Dee Borsma. She uh, is a penguin expert. Yeah, Dee's a researcher at the University of Washington. Now, Dee, you, you know penguins. They don't fall down on the ice. Uh, can, can you help me out? <laughs> well, one is you got to be careful, and I can't help you with that. Okay. <laughs> no one can. The, the thing is... With penguins, the reason that they don't fall and slip on the ice is they, that they walk like metronomes. So you could walk like a metronome. People would think you looked a little weird, but, um, and that would certainly help you. But penguins have a real, a real advantage in, in terms of walking on the ice. Number one, because they're swaying from side to side. That saves them energy so that they're kind of self-propelled that way. But the most important thing is that they keep a lot of their weight low. Um, of course, penguins have long legs. We think that they don't, but they actually do, but they cover them up with all that skin. So it's kind of like they're walking in tight skirts. So women know about that, men not so much, but if you imagine yourself in in a very tight skirt, um, then you realize that uh, it's a long skirt, so it goes down to your ankles. Um, You can't get your feet really apart even though your legs are long. 
you know, because the skirt's constraining. And that's really the problem for penguins. Wait, so I, I always imagine they have these tiny little legs. So if, oh, I'm, no. if I'm picturing a penguin, how far up do the legs go? <laughs> um, much further than you would think. Depends on the, on the species, but quite high. So their legs almost go up um, halfway up their body. Wow. So no penguins idea. have long legs. And, of course, they've got very fat ankles. They have cankles? Well, yes, their tarsus <laughs> or their ankles. Yeah, they got fat ankles. So, yeah, I mean, I think anybody, you could, you could say to anybody, you know, just imitate a penguin, and they, they would naturally fall into that side-to-side waddle motion. That's right. So that's what I'll do, and uh, I probably won't fall down again. Well, it'd be better if you could keep your weight lower, but I don't know how you can do that. <laughs> I really fat ankles like a penguin, so <laughs> that should help. Yeah, well, if you, could, if you could just drop that stomach about another, you know, three feet, that weight <laughs> down there, because um, that's one of the other advantages. I mean, because, again, uh, you know, penguins have those long legs, but their stomach is also low, and when they fill that up, they're, they're putting their weight much lower than we do. And, of course, they've got their own refrigerator. They store their, the fish in their stomachs and then regurgitate that to their, their chicks. Well, Dee, thank you, thank you so much for talking to us about penguins. All right. Well, just keep waddling along. Dee Borsma is a researcher at the University of Washington, and she's director of the Wildlife Conservation Society's Penguin Project. Hey, Kevin, what can we help you with? Well, I was, you know, we, I was having this discussion with a physicist friend, that, but, you know, you watch a turntable turn on a, a record player, and one side's going one way, and the other side's going the other way, and so we're wondering what exactly, I mean, as you get closer to the middle, it slows down, right? but then what exactly is happening in the middle? I mean, it, it seems like at some point it stops going one direction and it starts to go the other direction. So what, what you're saying really is if you're, if you're looking at a spinning uh, disc, the, let's say it's spinning uh, counterclockwise, the, the, the top half is all, the way you're looking at it is always going to be turning to the left, always going to be headed left. Correct. The bottom half is always going to be headed right. Right. But then in the very middle, it can't be going both left and right. Right. So what? <laughs> Where's it going? Well, we know it's not standing still, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I was just I was wondering. I mean, relative to the Earth, I guess. I feel like if nothing else, Kevin, we've just recreated that conversation you had initially, where it sounds like a bunch of college sophomores <laughs> up late in the middle of the night going, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. When did this come to you, this question, yeah. Kevin? Um, I'd, I'd have to say it was probably early in the morning after a cup of coffee and trying mm. to think of, you know how to solve solve the problems. Well, Kevin, we're going to look into this for you. We have uh, we have a physicist in mind, and hopefully he'll help us out. Is it Walt? Yes. Yeah. Yes, oh. it is. We're going to try. <laughs> he's just, surly. It's incredible. It's great. I mean, he's a kind of a, a model for college teaching. Well, yeah, he both explains the what you're looking for and then will also shame you at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's the best part. I mean, our experience with him... If if you were to if you were to just pick up the phone and call him right now, he might answer the phone, and before you even ask him the question, he might explain the disc thing to you. He might <laughs> he might just know. He'll be somehow. midway through his, yeah. his explanation. <laughs> he would say, "Oh, that's old hat. That's nothing." All right, we're gonna we're gonna look into this for you, Kevin. Oh, thank you. Take All care, right. Kevin. All right, thanks. Bye bye. Bye. All right, we should call up Walt. And when we say Walt, we're talking about uh, Doctor Walt Lewin. 
who's an esteemed physicist at MIT. He's, he's not going to like this. Walter Lewin. Hello, Dr. Lewin. Yeah, this is he. Hello, this is uh, Mike and Ian from How to Do Everything. Hi there. Fine. You want to know about a rotational disc, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. If you have a disc that rotates, and if it doesn't wobble, that means if the axis of rotation is absolutely solidly stable in your room, then there is one point and only one point that doesn't move at all. That point has only zero size, but the theoretical point that doesn't move. So the center... All other points, all other points outside that point rotate with exactly the same frequency about that point. And if the, the disk rotates five resolutions per second, then all other points, no matter where they are on the disk, go around that point five times per second. Now, if I take an object, say a piece of putty, and I slam that piece of putty somewhere close to that imaginary point, which really stands still, right. then there is one point in that piece of putty, which is exactly above that one point that will also stand still, and all the rest of the putty will go around with the same frequency that the disk is going around. So the whole question is a little silly. It's a high school question. Because the point that stands still has zero dimension. It's one point. And all other points move. Okay, sure. What more, what more can I say? So it's pretty simple. So Kevin, who asked this question, we should just tell him that there's just one point, and that's the middle. Oh, it doesn't have to be the middle at all. Oh, no. Oh. Because that's only true if your alignment of your axis of rotation is exactly through the middle of the disk, which is highly unlikely. So every uh, rotating wheel that I see in the world, there is a theoretical point of uh, no movement. Well, the answer is no, because no axis of rotation is that stable. Because the moment if you take a bicycle on the road, you think that the axis of rotation is stable, you just wobble up and down with your bicycle. And so that point does move. Well, so you said if we, if we had a spinning wheel or a spinning disc and we threw yeah. some putty on it, we would be able to see, we'd be able to make sense of this, right? Then there is one point on the putty that stands still. Well, so if I had a pottery wheel, yeah. could I try this with a pottery wheel? No, you can do it with a pottery wheel. I don't think your axis of rotation will go exactly through the center, but that's irrelevant. Right. Okay. Because I'm just thinking of that scene in the movie Ghost. Have you seen the movie Ghost? No. Because there's a great scene where Demi Moore, the actress, and Patrick Swayze uh, have this very passionate, romantic scene uh, while they're messing with a pottery wheel. And I'm wondering if we could use that as a way to kind of talk about spinning discs. I cannot give you, I cannot answer that because I haven't seen that movie. Can you at least imagine that kind of a romantic scenario with people? No, I cannot. I, I, I have to see the movie. Dr. Lewin, thank you so much for your time. This has been really great, and I think Kevin's going to appreciate this answer. Okay, I hope it's useful. Take care. All right, so let's say you have a, a spy plane or a, maybe a personal spy drone. 
How, how do you make sure it's seeing what it's supposed to be seeing? Aerospace historian Peter Merlin, can you can you tell us? Well, obviously, when testing a reconnaissance platform, you need to calibrate the imaging sensors, uh, the cameras. So there, uh, there are targets on the ground that are used. Uh, some of them are just flat uh, black and white panels with a grid, kind of like the... Uh, almost like an eye chart, except it's just uh, patterns of rectangles of different sizes. And it's used for uh, resolving the, the smallest group of, of these rectangular bars that can be seen uh, on the image at various altitudes. So there, there are these basically like parking lots with spy plane eye charts on them across the country. Could, could it happen that I would be driving along and would just come upon one? Uh, it's possible. Since they're flat on the ground, most of them, uh, people tend to drive right by them. There's one near Cudaback Dry Lake in the Mojave Desert, which you know, I probably drove by half a dozen times before I ever saw it. So if I did uh, come upon one, like the the one in the Mojave Desert, say, uh, if I didn't know that this whole thing existed, what might I think this this was? Well, uh, that's a good question. It looks, it, it is really bizarre. I remember the first time I saw one, you know, I had to think a moment to figure out what it was. But that idea that it really did look like an eye chart uh, sort of intuitively allows you to grasp grasp the nature of the uh, uh, the feature. Probably a lot of these targets in uh, Nevada and California were used during the development of the U-2 spy plane and the later SR-71 Blackbird. So is it possible that a lot of the uh, UFO sightings that people see around these these areas... Those areas are actually just spy planes? Well, it's entirely possible. You know, I live in an area where we've got Edwards Air Force Base, Plant 42, all these test facilities. We've got all kinds of weird stuff flying in the sky all the time. Even ordinary things get misidentified frequently, stuff that shouldn't be. Like, you know, I used to scoff at people who said that the planet Venus could be misidentified as a, as a UFO. I thought, how could, how could that be? You know, it's a stationary light in the sky. It's obvious it's, you know, like a star or planet. How do you know, you know, why would you think it was a moving object? But even I got suckered into that under the right conditions. Really? Yeah, because, you know, um, in this case, Venus was against a clear sky, except for a long, thin cloud of smoke from a fire. And I saw this thing, and it looked like it was moving in strange ways. And it wasn't until later that I realized it was, stationary. It was the cloud that was moving, creating an optical illusion. Had you called anyone and told them there was a UFO? No, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was fun to uh, to examine that phenomenon and, and you know, realize that, yeah, I can see how that happens now. Well, so do you, are, given all of this then, are you skeptical about UFOs? If, if you ask me, you know, is there other intelligent life in the universe, I'd say, Sure, of course there is. The universe is huge, but the question of whether or not any intelligent life has visited the Earth, that's, you know, there are a lot of factors against it, starting with just the, the physical difficulty of you know, interstellar travel, to say nothing of the fact that uh, you know, nobody ever considers the fact that, yeah, sure, maybe some other civilization invented starships, but maybe their budget got cut, and that's why they didn't come here. <laughs> I mean, why shouldn't they have budget problems, too? We do. We don't do enough to consider the kind of uh, political climate that these aliens are dealing with. Right. Well, thanks again, Pete. Thank you. 
we should mention that we got turned on to the spy plane eye charts from the Center for Land Use Interpretation newsletter. Check it out if you haven't already. You haven't already. There's no way you already did. I did. We heard from Kent and Randy, and Kent and Randy listened to our podcast while making cheese. I think that's fantastic. Kent and Randy, these next 15 seconds are for you. Yeah, I can just imagine getting all the way. Churning. Yeah, making some cheese. Curds. Those are just words about cheese. This concludes the number of words I know about cheese. We are still collecting your Toilets of the Week. Send us your nominations at howto at npr.org. And this week's toilet comes from Sam in Concord, New Hampshire. Hey, Sam, tell us about your toilet. So the toilet that I visited is at the Common Man restaurant. They've got these sort of folksy recordings of uh, a New Hampshire comedian. I think we can call her that. Uh, just sort of, just sort of uh, shooting it, you know, just talking about New Hampshire stuff. She, well, wait, wait, is she telling jokes and then you're supposed to, as you're going to the bathroom, are you laughing? Uh, I mean, people probably occasionally laugh. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I've ever laughed. I mean, you kind of groan. <laughs> it's a, it's a really, a, it's a groaner. Okay, sure. So I understand. So you have, uh, you've visited, recorded a little bit. Do you want to play some of that for us? Yeah, sure. Hang on just a second. People who live in glass houses should change clothes in the basement. That's for sure. Confucius says, man who eats family photo is spitting image of his father. Tell, tell us about the experience the first time you encountered this bathroom. Well, okay, so I grew up here, and so the first time I used it, I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, your experience as a teenager of anything is kind of, you can't really, it's not really representative of anything. So at the time, you know, I might have thought it was funny. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. So I but I I don't I don't know that that would happen again. Well, have the jokes changed since you were a teenager? No. Oh no. <laughs> really? Yeah, no, it's it's as far as I can tell it's the same track. Well, this is great, Sam. Congratulations. You have this week's toilet of the week. Thanks a lot, guys. That does it for today's show. What we learned today, Mike? Well, I learned that penguins have legs. Yeah. I had underestimated their legs by about 800%. I also learned that they refrigerate things on their insides. Yeah. I mean, just imagine how simple our lives would be if we could just, like, store things, like, in our stomach, like a beer. Like, oh, I don't need a cooler. I got it right here. It also makes you think, what if uh, this is how we got food out of our refrigerators? I'm going to go get, uh, you know, a sandwich. Refrigerator, could you just vomit up some bread for me? Or, or worse, imagine if for refrigerators we just had penguins in our kitchens. You've just imagined a much more adorable world. Yeah, well. Do you think that spy planes admit that they're spies? Oh, they like they go undercover. Hey, are you, uh, are you a spy plane? Like, I can't tell you that. I work for the government. I'm, regular, I'm a regular plane. With reg- yeah. I do regular plane things. 
How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Haga with technical direction from Lorna White. And our intern this week is... Hi, my name is Ron Simone and I am 8 years old today. I really like your show. I listen to it every week. Can I please be your intern this week? Thank you. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And check out our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. I'm Mike. Thanks. You know what deja vu means, right? Well, do you know what Dijon vu is? It means the same mustard you had yesterday. Oh, boo. Oh, that was a bad one. That was a bad one. Sorry.